Welcome to Interventions, the Intellectual History Podcast. My name is Toshif Kara. And my name is Valentina Mann. And today we are talking to Dr. Emma Hunter. Dr. Emma Hunter is currently a senior lecturer in African history and a founding co-director of the Center for Global History at the University of Edinburgh. She obtained her doctorate here at Cambridge and has since returned as this year's Quentin Skinner Fellow in Intellectual History at Crash. Emma is a historian of Africa and focuses primarily on African intellectual history and political thought in the 20th century. Her monograph, Political Thought and the Public Sphere in Tanzania, Freedom, Democracy and Citizenship in the Era of Decolonization, won the Royal Historical Society's Gladstone Prize in 2016. Emma, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. As usual on this podcast, we will start with a question about your intellectual biography. When and how did you come to the study of intellectual history? And when did you realize that you wanted to have an academic career? Well, I guess I came to the study of intellectual history because I became interested in the ideas um, that powered that period of transformation in mid-20th century Africa that saw a um, continent governed by empires become a continent of, of nation states. And I wanted to understand more about those ideas. And it seemed to me that the way to do that was through intellectual history and, and the history of political thought. And that the histories of, of some of those ideas had been squeezed out of um, many of the, the histories that were being written at the time that I began my uh, research career, so in the early 2000s. So that's how I came to intellectual history. The question of how do I realise I wanted to have an academic career is is a hard one. And I think really it's more a question of having more questions that I wanted to answer. So I came to the end of my undergraduate study and I wanted to know more and to understand more about the ideas of of, uh, 20th century Africa, which took me into my doctoral research. And then when that ended, I still had questions and... Right now, I still have questions. At the point where I don't have questions anymore, then perhaps some other career will will beckon. But I think that's really what um, has led me on so far. So in your first book, Political Thought and the Public Sphere in Tanzania, you explore the varied languages of freedom, democracy, and citizenship invoked by political actors in mid-20th century Tanzania. One of these is the Swahili term maendeleo, How would you translate this for our listeners, and why do you think that it is a key concept for understanding the intellectual history of decolonization in Tanzania, along with, say, more well-known concepts of freedom like Uhuru or Ujamaa? Thank you. It's a really good question, a big question. So the term Maendeleo is typically translated either as development or progress, and In the print worlds of Swahili phone Tanzania and indeed in in manuscript sources, letters, petitions and and so on, we start seeing that term appear with increasing regularity after 1945. Other historians have, have noticed this as well. It replaces the term which used to be seen much more frequently, which was in the 1920s and 30s, the term Ustarabu, or civilization. So where once people would have talked about civilization when they wanted to talk about progress, now they're talking about development, Mayan Deleo, progress. It's interesting 
partly because it hasn't fallen out of use in the way that some other of those keywords or key concepts that were powerful in the 50s and 60s have. So you mentioned in your question the term ujamaa, and that is the term which is typically translated as African socialism or sometimes as familyhood. And that was very much tied to Julius Nyerere, the first president of Tanzania's policies in the 1960s and 70s. But it's not a, a term of common current political discourse. Whereas this term Mayandaleo has survived the transition from the era of the 60s and 70s into the, the current era, such that one of Tanzania's uh, principal opposition parties, Chadema, has the term Mayandaleo in its name. So it's the Chamata Democracia na Mayandaleo, the party of democracy and progress. So what was that term doing in, in my book and in, in my understanding of what was happening. For me, thinking about that term was a way of setting up what I saw as the intellectual currents of the 40s and 50s at the point where my story started. I was interested in the way in which it seemed to me talking about Mayandaleo had become a way of talking about modernity and what it meant. So it's not a straight translation of modernity, it's not the way that you would translate that, that term, but it seemed to me to provide a space in which writers were thinking about progress, what did progress mean, what should progress look like, but also about the dark sides of progress, the way in which Mayandaleo could bring material benefits, but it could also have a dark side, that it could see the breaking up of families, of, of social networks, of communities. So for me, it became a space in which we could see people thinking about modernity and its discontents. What does modernity mean? So that's, that's why it became an important concept for me. And that really was not something I was expecting it was one it's in the, the book that you mentioned at the beginning, Political Thought in the, the Public Sphere. The discussion of Maya Deleo comes in the first chapter, which might suggest that was the first thing that, that um, I write about, wrote about and, and thought about. In fact, it, was, it almost came last. It was a product of reading very widely across print matter of the, the 40s, 50s, and as I've said, some, some uh, manuscript sources as well. Some of the main sources you turn to in order to recover uh, these debates that you've just outlined uh, are newspapers, uh, notable in the book that when you're talking about political thought, you're not relying exclusively on specific individuals, publications, or just on archival sources. Instead, you carefully examined how newspapers were shaped by specific political contexts and how they in turn created arenas of discussion with some very specific rules and limits. So could you tell us a bit more of the rewards and challenges of working with such sources? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I came to the newspapers that I use in that book uh, somewhat hesitantly. When I was initially conceptualising the project, I imagined that newspapers would be an important source. But Tanzania, mainland Tanzania, is slightly unusual within the region in that an independent press developed comparatively late. So whereas in Kenya and Uganda, we see um, a very lively vernacular 
press in the 1920s, we don't see that same thing develop in Tanzania. Um, the first independent newspaper that's able to sustain itself is uh, the newspaper Kwetu, which uh, begins publication in 1937 and has a slightly um, rocky um, career as a, as a newspaper. And there are various reasons for this. And um, one aspect is the censorship regime in Tanzania, which meant that a hefty bond had to be paid if you were to publish on a regular basis. Um, Kwetu got round this by publishing every 18 days. <laughs> But the, that censorship um, regime made it difficult to, to publish. And of course, there are also um, questions around uh, Tanzania's economic um, position, question of capital um, and availability of capital at that time. So when I went to the, the 1920s and 30s, um, what I found was predominantly government and missionary newspapers and periodicals. And that continues through into the 1950s until relatively late in the day when we see the emergence of a nationalist press. Um, so, for example, in the 1950s, the circulation of district newspapers, so these are government newspapers effectively run by district councils, um, which of course are having to then operate in that very tightly constrained framework, um, still have a, a larger circulation um, than independent newspapers. So I came to them very hesitantly because most people who were writing about uh, or who were using newspapers as sources at that time were using independent newspapers. So they were looking at newspapers which were politically oppositional, um, which were spaces for anti-colonial critique. Some of them based in individual countries, others, of course, um, based in London or Paris and circulated and sometimes clandestinely in, in Africa. So radical newspapers. So radical newspapers, anti-colonial critique, my newspapers were talking about um, the governor's latest speech or how to better look after your cattle in order to get more milk out of your cattle or whatever it might be. So it, it seemed a, a strange place to be looking. But read in more detail, I think they can be very valuable. And I think in, in a number of different ways. Um, one is by thinking about the ways in which they were didactic. They, they, they were explicitly and intentionally didactic. They were aimed at creating new kinds of political subjects. And that's one of the things that um, we need to try to understand in the history of the, the first half of the 20th century. Another reason they're important is because there was space in them within tight constraints for some degree of exchange. So the letters pages are incredibly important in those newspapers and also um, spaces in which people bring or write in with news from the district. Um, and in the case of a newspaper or a periodical like Mamboleo, published by the Education Department, again for explicitly didactic ends from the 1920s onwards, they were receiving 300 to 400 letters a month from people across the, the territory. Now, of course, they make choices about which to publish to further the ends of the newspaper, but they also explicitly see them as a space to hear um, what people are saying. So I think it can be valuable for hearing some of the voices that we otherwise don't hear from the first half of, of the 20th century. And I think, too, 
the standardized form of the newspaper or periodical and the similarities between newspapers and periodicals being published in colonial settings in Africa and colonial settings around the world, it helps us to see the ways in which some of the central political concepts of the 20th century were being globalized, but also taking on meaning in distinctive contexts, distinctive meanings in indistinctive contexts. And both of those things we can see in the pages of these newspapers and periodicals. So thinking some more about uh, newspapers as sources, I just had a question about how examining uh, the ways in which the press is, uh, is shaped by political context and the different roles that it can play in, in this case, a colonial context. How can focusing on this invite historians to perhaps rethink uh, what they assume to be the relationship between something called civil society, public debate on the one hand, and the state on the other? So, as I mentioned in my reply to the previous question, um, one of the things which uh, really interested me as I looked around the world, um, particularly in the 1920s and 30s, was that my newspapers were not unique. Um, I was very um, inspired and, and influenced by a PhD thesis about the history of the public sphere in Nepal, um, which similarly was looking at a government newspaper, which was so similar to the newspapers and protocols that I was finding. Um, I was very interested too in um, the newspapers published in uh, Maori language in 19th century New Zealand, which similarly were government or mission newspapers and periodicals, but provided a space in which people were reflecting on what political society could look like um, and um, seeking in various ways to hold power to account. Now, of course, none of this fits into a normative idea of what a free press might look like and of civil society as a space independent um, from the state in which the state is, is held to account. So I was interested in thinking more about then how print operated in these colonial public spheres um, and whether indeed the term colonial public sphere is a way of capturing what we're talking about. Um, so that's led to um, a project which I've been working on over the last few years with Leslie James at uh, QMUL now and with other colleagues in Cambridge um, and beyond, trying to compare uh, or to bring case studies from around the colonial world and to apply a set of lenses to think about how print is operating in those spaces. So we're looking at um, the various case studies through the lenses of uh, materiality, periodicity, performativity and addressivity to better understand how print operates and to stretch and test the idea of a colonial public sphere. All of that though um, is very important but I'd also add that while the normative idea of the, the free press um, as part of as a constituent part of a theory of democracy is perhaps limited in its analytical usefulness. It was incredibly important to the actors that I'm studying. So the idea that the press ought to be free, ought to be independent, and the interference with it was unacceptable, um, was a powerful driver of many of the people who were either working as journalists or who were writing in and engaging with the um, the press in um, in, the, in, in, in the periods that I've been studying. 
the idea of the free press was important to colonial officials as well. And they would say explicitly, if we take again Mamboleo as an example, Mamboleo is not censored. It's a powerful idea because, again, if we're thinking about this as a time where colonial regimes are seeking to create political mm. society mm-hmm. and their self-identification as um, the creators of uh of political society mm-hmm. that helps define how they see themselves and what they are doing. Um, so yes, it's it's a powerful idea, both for um, journalists who are writing in an independent press. I say Tanzania is unusual because there's very limited space. There are lots of examples of independent newspapers um, across colonial Africa where um, journalists and editors say emphatically the function of the press um, is to be um, a space in which we can challenge government and hold government to account. Um, But yeah, we see that idea too creeping into the way that colonial officials who are running some of these newspapers think about what they're doing and, and why they're doing it. So one argument you make in the book concerns uh, the importance of revising the inevitability of the post-colonial nation state. You've already, uh, in your responses, made some comparisons between Tanzania and other colonial settings. You have also expanded on this point to look at how assumptions about the naturalness of definitions of mid-20th century liberalism as centered on rights and autonomy have influenced the kind of voices historians privilege. How have these assumptions influenced the writing of 20th century political thought in your field, and what do they leave out? Well, I think they have perhaps, in some cases, led to an overemphasis on um, the ideas and ideologies which were aimed at the creation of a political society based on a set of what we could broadly term liberal norms. So those who were, um, who spoke a language of modernity and progress, those who were thinking about creating a, um, a system of government based on elections, um, founded on principles of social and political equality, who um, spoke about equality between men and women, um, a modern and modernising elites rather than um, those who um, perhaps held hereditary power, hereditary office. And I think one of the challenges that we face in thinking about the period of, uh, of decolonization and the birth of um, the, the post-colonial state um, is to find ways of recovering the voices which were marginalized at that time, which were squeezed out, but which didn't go away and which resurface to critique the post-colonial states which then emerged. And I think one of one of the challenges we face is to find ways of hearing those voices, because often um, it's they were squeezed out at the time, and so they are squeezed out of the archival record. Um, in the newspapers that I've been talking about, um, sometimes those voices have to be looked for by reading against the grain, by seeing in the letters that do come in, who are they responding to who is not writing in to the newspaper, who is not getting published in the newspaper. And there might be other spaces too where we could hear some of those voices in fiction, for example, in songs. And so one of the challenges, I think, um, for 
historians of political thought in uh, 20th century Africa is to go beyond the sources which are Anglophone, Francophone, easily available, and to dig out some of those voices that otherwise might get missed out. And they might be in, for example, legal cases, as I said before, in some of the places like um, uh, fiction or, or songs. Um, they may often be in vernacular languages um, and try to listen to what, what those voices are saying. I wanted to ask if you could provide some examples of maybe some of these archival silences and um, colonial futures that never realized. I mean, could you perhaps provide for our listeners some examples of this? Um, let me give us an example. The Kilimanjaro Chaga Citizens Union in 1950s Moshi district, who um, increasingly seem to be out of step with their times. They're talking about the responsibility of fathers to their sons and expecting deference from the young. Um, they are um, talking about uh, making the recently elected paramount chief um, into a hereditary office um, rather than uh, somebody put there on the basis of election. And I think one of the... in. In the, the, the dominant historiographies of the, the 1950s, the temptation is to focus on the ways in which um, the new ideas of Tanu, of the nationalist movement and of its local iterations, um, was winning out um, and squeezing out and marginalising those ideas. Um, but then over the course of the 1960s, we see how some of the critiques of um, the governing party come from a certain hesitation and um, concern about some of the radical policies um, that, the, that, that those governments were, uh, that government was um, putting forward. And a concern about... Um, a loss of community or a loss of, uh, of, of social cohesion or social connections um, that could follow from radical change. So um, an eye to, to some of these more conservative voices ultimately is perhaps what I'm suggesting we need to listen for in order to better understand when and why the radical projects fail um, or don't achieve what they hoped to achieve. The topic for this year's Quentin Skinner Lecture and Symposium, which you delivered and organized in June of this year, was Recovering Liberties in 20th Century Africa. I imagine this was meant as a gesture to the late Professor Christopher Bailey's book on Indian political thought, published in 2011, Recovering Liberties, Indian Thought in the Age of Liberalism and Empire. How do you situate your work and the broader project of African intellectual history in relation to the emerging sphere of global intellectual history? Yeah, um, so it was absolutely um, intended as um, a, a gesture towards Christopher Bailey's book. And um, Christopher Bailey taught me as an undergraduate and, and was later a, a colleague here in Cambridge. And I think as a result, um, over the last 15 years, my own research agenda has been shaped or has developed in dialogue with 
what you describe as the emerging field of global intellectual history. And I was enormously excited to see the way that Christopher Bailey's work was developing in the 2000s. And particularly uh, when I read the transcripts of his Wiles lectures in um, Belfast, which talked about the history of political thought as not just something that elites did or the study of what elites wrote and said, but it was the study about how people in the past think about politics. And that was really my definition too of, of what the history of political thought could be and should be. Um, global intellectual history has since then, of course, you know, taken on uh, a huge amount of momentum. You know, we now have a journal of global intellectual history, modern intellectual history, the journal is increasingly taking a, a global turn. And I think that's incredibly exciting. But I think my own feeling is that there are risks too. And specifically the risk of what we miss if we focus on connections that we start to emphasize or to see the familiar at the expense of the unfamiliar, the Anglophone or Francophone at the expense of the vernacular or regional lingua franca like uh, Swahili um, and the connected over the, the disconnected. So I think what I would advocate for is um, that alongside this wonderfully exciting global intellectual history, and although that's bringing us, also a serious attention to the history of political thought in the sense of ideas in context. And that could be in the context of specific national set spaces, but also um, more broadly across, across a region or, or thinking internationally and thinking about how political societies were forged in those spaces. Um, so that would, that's, I think, how I would situate myself in relation to the emerging field of global intellectual history. On a related note, what are some of the stakes involved with writing intellectual histories of the global south and former colonies? And how might these relate to current debates about decolonization in history? I think for me, what is so important is to decenter the European and Western historical experience, which is still too often taken as a norm um, from which other experiences deviate. And essentially to provincialize, um, to use Deepesh Chakrabarti's um, powerful term, to, to provincialize that experience. And I think that, that for me is, is a large part of what, what my work is about. But I would say that I, in my own work, um, that it's not straightforwardly a question of writing an intellectual history of the global south. Um, and again, in situating myself, I would perhaps situate myself in a slightly different tradition from the the very, again, very strong and increasingly um, dynamic field of African intellectual history, because the ideas that I'm looking at are forged in a transnational or global space. And in the 20th century, I see this as an entangled history of, of ideas and, and concepts. And I think that's one of the things which my perspective brings into those debates with others who focused more um, uh, 
um, or situate themselves more firmly within a, a tradition of writing African intellectual history. I'm quite excited about the debates that are taking place at the moment around uh, around decolonizing the curriculum um, specifically, but also um, around thinking about what um, it means to to decolonize history. I think one thing I would say um, that I think it's important to remember is that African history as as a subdiscipline, and we're we're talking to you about intellectual history, but I also situate myself in relation to um, African history and the history of Africa. It started out in the nineteen sixties as a project, as essentially a decolonizing project, as a project to write um, an African history for an independent Africa. And the radical roots of that uh, discipline, I think, are really important that we keep hold of uh, and we remember and, and try to. Um, be inspired by today um, and I think it's the some of the arguments that are taking place at the moment um, give those of us who um, have long been concerned with trying better to understand the history of Africa to write the history of Africa um, uh, it gives us a space to advocate for that to claim uh, the resources that we need to do that work um, and that work is difficult and it's expensive. It must be done in partnership and in dialogue with colleagues based in Africa and in the rest of the world. And building those partnerships takes, again, time and money. So I hope that talking more about what it means to decolonize history provides some spaces to, to make those cases in the universities that we work in, uh, in uh, or those of us who are based in universities in the UK to make the case um, for the, the time and resources to do that kind of work. But I think too, what this moment must mean is a recognition of the multiple ways of writing history um, and a recognition that there will be different and competing ways of thinking about the past, different and competing um, approaches to to thinking about history. And we've already in, in today's uh, discussion, we've touched on some of the ways in which increasing numbers of sub-disciplines are developing different methodologies to all get at the same set of issues and, and ideas. And I hope that as we move forward, that we can do that in that spirit of of collaboration, of listening to each other, of respecting the different perspectives that we're all coming from and learning from each other, um, rather than any one of us saying, my approach is the only way forward and that's the way to go. So I, I think that for me, that's what this moment could and, and should mean, and I hope it will. So your upcoming book project is going to be a uh, new modern history of Tanzania from 1830 to 2009. Could you tell us a bit more about this project and what it might look like to write a national intellectual history in the age of global histories? Yeah. So I think for me, and we've talked a bit about this already, one of the, the key things that we have to remember is the contingency of the world order that was formed in the mid-20th century, that it became seen as 
natural or part of the natural order of things to have a world of nation states. And that coexisted with other possibilities, um, other ways of thinking about what a political community could look like. Um, But also there were important connections at that time uh, and still are, which are not captured if we work within the container of the nation state. And so I think the one way of, um, I think why it's important to write national histories essentially in a a post-national age is to better understand um, why it was that, that, that that did happen and also the ways in which the nation has in the period since become incredibly important um, for people's sense of identity, for the ways in which they operate, but again has still never cut off entirely the other connections that supersede that nation state. So I think it's um, it's helpful for us to to think about the nation in that uh, in that nexus. And I should say that 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 project I'm doing alongside and in dialogue with a broader project called Another World, East Africa and the Global 1960s, which is a collaborative project um, with my colleagues Jess McCann at York, Dan Branch at Warwick, Ismay Milford, um, based in Edinburgh, and our two doctoral students on the project, Anna Adima at York and uh, Daniel Heathcote at Edinburgh, in which we're trying to um, think at the level of the East African region um, focus at the level of the East African region to understand why it was and to understand why it was that in over the course of the, the 1960s and 70s some of the global connections of the 40s and 50s broke down and were replaced by an introverted nationalism. So we're thinking, we're trying to think about the ways in which globalisation um, is fragile, it can retrench um, and go backwards and of course um, the um, moment in which we are talking and and working, um, this need to understand those processes is is incredibly salient and, and important um, for us all as engaged citizens of the world. Um, and I think that's a project that needs to be done um, at the regional level, outside the container of the nation state, in order to better understand some of those patterns and to see the connections. that that we might otherwise miss. So the two projects, to some extent, work hand in hand and and I hope the results will be interesting, Um, but time will tell. That's it for today. Thank you very much, Emma Hunter, for joining us. Thank you for having me. And thanks for listening. We will also tweet links to some of Emma Hunter's recent publications. So if you do not yet follow us on Twitter, please do, at the IH Podcast. If you are listening on iTunes, please support us by rating or reviewing the podcast. We will be back soon with another episode of Interventions, the Intellectual History Podcast.